0: Uh, one of my favorite songs that we sung this morning is actually Joy to the World. Uh, probably like most of you, it's a song that uh, I can't remember not knowing. I've sung it my whole life. I've heard it sung in the car. It's one of those songs that seems to be on, on every Christmas CD, that everyone from Kenny G to Kenny Rogers has done it. Kenny Loggins, I don't think, has done it. But you know what's funny, though, is that it's not actually... A Christmas song, or it wasn't written as a Christmas song. Joy to the World was actually written as an adaptation of Psalm 98 by an Anglican minister named Isaac Watts. And so, in light of the New Testament, Watts saw that the Psalm was pointing to Jesus' return to judge and reign on earth. And so, Joy to the World isn't really talking about baby Jesus. And when I realized this for the first time, it gave me new lenses for understanding the song. Here's one example. I finally understood why there was this weird verse about a curse and thorns being removed. That's the third verse. Watts wanted his readers to see that when Christ returns, he'll wipe away the curse of sin. And so that's why we sing No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. That's incredible, right? Christ is going to wipe away the curse of sin. Yet despite this, people usually remove this verse because it doesn't really sound Christmassy, but instead it reminds us of the effects of sin and death in our world. When we watch the news, we see wars arguing and natural disasters. We see people being gunned down in schools, in churches, and even their homes. And when we look at our own city, we see an increase in suicide, and homelessness. And even when we look in our, home, our own homes, we see depression and anxiety. We see outbursts of anger and hidden addictions. We feel the pains of our bodies breaking down day by day. And we feel the deep sorrow over the loss of loved ones, especially at this time of year. And this is why we sing, do we feel the world is broken? And all of us can say in agreement, we do. Maybe when you look at these things or hear about them, you're tempted to think that God is distant, that he doesn't care about us. Maybe you're even tempted to ditch Christianity altogether because it doesn't seem like God is fixing any of this. Yet our text this morning claims otherwise. And it will see that Christ will one day wipe away sin, sorrow, and death. And the curse will be no more. And on that day, we'll worship him, we'll see him, and we'll reign with him. And so grab your Bibles... We're going to be in Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5 this morning. If you're looking for Revelation 22, uh, it's pretty easy. Just flip to the back of your Bible. It's the last chapter. And again, we're going to be in verses 1 through 5. This is what it says. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So if you're taking notes, what we're going to see in this text, this is going to be my sermon in a sentence. It's this. In the new Eden, we will be with God, and he will be our source of life. So again, in the new Eden, we will be with God, and he will be our source of life. And then in verses 1 and 2, we're going to see that life is from God. So again, verses 1 and 2, we're going to see life from God. And then in verses 3 through 5, we're going to see life with God. So again, life from God, life with God. So again, in verses 1 and 2, we'll be seeing life from God. And here are my subpoints. In verse 1, we're going to see uh, that there's a river of life. And then in verse 2, we'll see the tree of life. So look with me at our passage. It says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So we can see here uh, that the angel is showing John something new. In the past two weeks, we saw that he showed John... Uh, the new heavens and the new earth. And then last week we saw that he showed him the new Jerusalem. And then in this week we're going to see him showing John a new Eden. And so if you're unfamiliar with that term Eden, uh, don't worry, that's actually found in the opening pages of the Bible. That the Garden of Eden was the place that God walked with the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. This is before sin entered the world before they were removed from God's presence. Yet we see here in our text today a new Garden of Eden. But you might be asking, how do we know this is a new Eden? We don't see that word. Well, first, this river in Revelation 22 seems to be pointing back to Genesis 2.10. It's there that we see that there was a river that flowed out of Eden to water the garden. You may also notice that the tree of life is in this new Eden. Like the original tree of life, this tree is also in the midst of the garden. It's being watered by the river. But this isn't just a new Eden. It's actually a better Eden. While the first Eden was a garden, we see in verse 2 that this new Eden is a city. Also, we can see at the end of verse 2 that this new Eden is is populated by a people from all nations. So this new Eden is like the old Eden times a thousand. That's kind of why this language is being used. And so you might be thinking, all that sounds great. What does it mean? Why is John seeing this vision? Well, if you've ever read the prophet Ezekiel, you might remember that he receives a similar vision in Ezekiel 47. So I want you to keep your finger on Revelation 22 and flip to Ezekiel 47 with me. If you need to use the table of contents, that's okay. I use the table of contents frequently. While you're flipping there, though, uh, this chapter comes at the end of Ezekiel's prophecy. Earlier in the book, we see that God's presence had left the temple in Jerusalem. Because his people were continually disobedient to God. And then we see that this temple was later destroyed by the Babylonians. Yet in chapters 40 through 48, Ezekiel receives a vision of the Lord returning to dwell with his people in a new temple. And so this brings us to Ezekiel 47. Look with me at verses 1 through 12. It says, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple. And behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around on the outside of the outer gate that faces towards the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. "'Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, "'the man measured a thousand cubits. "'And then he led me through the water, "'and it was ankle-deep. "'Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, "'and it was knee-deep. "'Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, "'and it was waist-deep. "'And again, he measured a thousand, "'and it was a river that I could not pass through, "'for the water had risen.'" It was deep enough to swim in, a river that couldn't be passed through. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down to Araba and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea, from Engedi to Enaglim. It will be a place for the spreading of nets, its fish Will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea, but its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. And on the banks of both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water from them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for healing. Again, this is the word of the Lord. Does it sound a little familiar to you? While there's a whole sermon's worth of information in this passage, the main thing I want you to see is that this river gives life. We can see that this river is flowing from the temple. This was the place that God's presence dwelt. And like in Revelation 22, we see a river flowing from God's presence. It grows deeper and deeper to the point that Ezekiel isn't able to pass through it. And we can see that as this river goes out, that it makes things come to life and flourish. In verse 8, we see that this river makes the seawater fresh. In verse 9, we see that the river gives life to the creatures that dwell in its waters. And then finally, in verse 12, we see that the trees on the banks of the river produce much fruit and that their leaves don't wither. Again, this river brings things to life. So I want you to flip back with me to Revelation 22. We can see here that John is seeing the fulfillment of Ezekiel's vision. He's seeing a better Eden. That's river brings life. If the best part about this new Eden isn't the river and it isn't the tree, the best part of this new Eden is that God and the lamb are enthroned in it. And while Adam and Eve were removed from the old Eden, now God dwells with his redeemed people in this new Eden. And this new Eden doesn't need a temple for God because God himself is the very temple And God is the one that this river of life is flowing from. He's the bottomless sea of life that is the source of this river. And friends, this future imagery points to a very present reality as well. Those who drink from it receive without payment. Listen to me. God makes dead things come to life. Even sinners. Because we're all born in Adam, we all sin and we all die. This is what we see in Romans 5.12, which says, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so, friend, all of us have sinned and all of us are dying. Yet despite this, God's word gives us good news. Romans 5.17 says, For if because of one man's trespasses, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. While the first Adam failed, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, succeeded. While the first Adam disobeyed God by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, was obedient to the point of death. He drank the cup of God's wrath that we deserved by dying a death on a tree for us. Yet Jesus isn't merely a man that died. He's the God-man. He's truly God and truly man. And so death wasn't able to hold him. He was raised from the dead to new life. And brothers and sisters, if you've confessed with your mouth and believe in your heart that he is the risen Lord then God has made you alive in Him. And His life is now your life. He has breathed His life-giving Spirit into you. He's given you a new heart that now desires to joyfully obey Him by faith. And so friends, don't forget this. God makes dead sinners come to life. He's the source of life. And so have you drank the water that will never make you thirsty again? Have you drank from the lamb's spring of water that wells up to eternal life? Brothers and sisters, we need to point one another back to this constantly. We try to find life in, in what we worship, yet we're often tempted to look for other sources of life. We're prone to drink from broken cisterns that only partially satisfy. So we might try to find life in our friends, our family, our spouse, in sexual intimacy, in our jobs, and our grades, or in getting enough rest. Yet none of these things can give us life. None of these things can give us eternal life with God. The approval of your boss, your teachers, your friends, and your family can't bring a dead sinner to life. They're not worthy of your worship. And if you put all of your hope and satisfaction in them, they'll kill you. And you'll become spiritually dehydrated and dead. So, brothers and sisters, we need to drink deeply from a well that will never leave us thirsty. We need to drink deeply in our fellowship with God. We need to encourage one another to spend time in prayer and the Word. We need to encourage one another not to flee from gathering with our church when things get hard. We need to encourage one another to draw near to God with the community that we've been placed in. Our hearts are idle factories. But God has given us one another to help put those idols to death. And so we need to help one another in this task. So I want to ask you, do you have people that know you? Do you have people that, around you that know what idols you're prone to follow? Do you have brothers and sisters in this church that are able to call you out on sin? That are able to encourage you? If you don't come and talk to one of the elders or me after the service, if you're in a small group, you might also consider talking with your leader. Uh, But regardless of who you talk to, we would love to help you find someone to walk with you. And so, brothers and sisters, let's make every effort to help one another drink deeply in our fellowship with God. Because what we taste now will experience in its fullness in the new Eden. Well, we've spoken at length about the river, But what are we to make of the tree of life? We can see that this tree is really big. Notice that it doesn't say that there are multiple trees of life. It says that there is the tree of life. And we see that this tree is so big that its shade and branches actually cover both sides of the river. We can also see in the text that It bears 12 kinds of fruit each of the 12 months of the year. This number 12 is is repeated frequently throughout the book of Revelation. In the previous chapter, we we saw that there are 12 gates with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on them. We saw that the foundation of the city had the names of the 12 apostles. And so we can see that this number of 12 points to completeness But we need to ask, what type of completeness is this tree of life pointing to? Well, look at the last part of of that verse. It says, The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. From eternity past, it was God's plan to make a kingdom for his son made up of a people from all nations. And so, what we see here in the tree of life is actually God's kingdom completed. And so you might remember Jesus' parable of the mustard seed from Mark 4. In it, Jesus compares the kingdom to a mustard seed. And he says, It is a grain of mustard seed, when which sown in the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade." What Jesus is saying is that even though his kingdom seemingly starts small, that it will become larger than all other kingdoms. And so this is what we see in the tree of life, that the kingdom has been completed. It's a kingdom that's domain is the whole cosmos, and it's filled with a people from all nations and tribes and tongues, and they've been healed by his grace. And so, as we saw in chapter 21, this kingdom has its foundation in the word. It's built through the proclamation of the gospel. This good news that was proclaimed by Christ and was given to the apostles. And so it's the same good news that we are proclaiming this morning. It's the same good news that we share with our friends and families and coworkers. And it's the same good news that you share with your children at bedtime. And it's even the same good news that some of you might go overseas to share. And so God is saving and healing sinners from all nations, tribes, and tongues through the power of the gospel. And we're the very means in which He intends to deliver His gospel so that He can accomplish His purposes. And so we don't have to be fearful as we share the gospel because we know that God will get all of his people. His kingdom can't be thwarted. No one can stop God's purposes through his word. And his kingdom will be complete because he's promised it. And so brothers and sisters, I know that it's easy to grow fearful when we think about sharing the gospel with our friends and family. We're worried that they'll want nothing to do with us. Worried that we could lose our jobs or face some type of persecution. Look, I know that pressure is very real, but listen to me. You get to tell them the greatest news ever. You get to tell them that this cursed world is being made new. You get to tell them that they can be cleansed of their sin. You get to tell them that they can know the triune God forever if they put their faith Jesus Christ, what's better than that? So when we get fearful in evangelism, we need to ask ourselves, do we believe that God is the only true source of life? Do we believe that life with God is better than anything that can be found here on earth? Well, if you're struggling to believe that this morning, look with me at verse 3 through 5. This brings me to my second point. In verse 3 through 5, we're going to see that life, we're going to see life with God. And in verse 3, we're going to see that we will worship God. In verses 4 and 5, that we'll see God. And then in verse 5, we'll see that we will reign with God. So look with me at verse 3. It says, No longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. If you're going to memorize a verse, this holiday season, memorize that one. It doesn't say that some of the curse will be gone. It doesn't say that most of it will be gone. It says no longer will there be anything accursed. All of the curse will be gone. Sin, death, and the devil will be no more. And we won't be tempted towards cutting our brothers and sisters down with sharp words. We won't be tempted by lustful thoughts. We won't be tempted towards bitterness and discontentment anymore. And since there will be no curse, we, his servants, will worship him without the presence of sin anymore. And so what we see here is priestly language that That word worship here means to serve God in the Greek. And like the priests who served in God's temple, we will serve God in this new Eden. We'll be able to draw near to God in all of his glory because we will be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain. We'll have new bodies that are incorruptible, that don't have an ounce of sin in them. And nothing will be in the way of us serving God with all of our heart, mind, and soul, and strength. All of our being will desire to ascribe to him glory and honor and power. Why? Because Christ has made us a ki- to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And so, brothers and sisters, this is why we were elected in love before the foundations of the earth so that Christ would present us as holy and blameless before the Father, so that we can serve him forever and ever. And so if you think that heaven is going to be eternal retirement, where you're sitting on the cruise ship, sipping on a pina colada, I, I don't think that that's what this text is, is pointing to. We, like Adam, will work and tend to the new creation, will work for God in heaven, yet our labor won't be painful anymore. And we won't eat bread by the sweat of our brows because there will be no more curse. Therefore, our work won't be in vain. Our work will be a joy, not a burden. And we won't grow discontent and we won't grow bitter at our boss. Serving the father isn't just a future reality though. That if you're in Christ, then you are to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We're to do all things to the glory of God by faith. And so do you see your schoolwork as worship, kids and college students? Do you see your job as worship? Do you see raising your kids as worship? We're all always worshiping something, but the question is, what are we worshiping? Are we seeking to worship God in our work or are we worshiping ourselves? Are we seeking the approval of God or are we seeking the approval of our peers? So brothers and sisters, it's only by faith in Christ that we can do all things to the glory of God. We see that Jesus did all things to the glory of God, the father. He never once sinned. He didn't grow bitter at the work that the father had sent him to do that. He was obedient in thought and deed to the point of death. And so we need to look to Christ for strength when we're tempted to grow bitter at the work that we've been given to do. The father will give us Christ's strength by the power of the spirit And yet until that day, we worship by faith. But one day we will worship him and serve him by sight. And so that's what we see in verse 4. That it says, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And so you might be thinking, how will we be able to see the face of God? You might think of Moses, when he asked to see the glory of God and the Lord responds by telling Moses, you can't see my face for man shall not see me and live. Yet while Moses would have died, if he saw the face of God, we'll be able to see the face of God in all of its majesty and glory. When the presence of sin is removed And the face of God that we now behold by faith will one day be our sight forever and ever. We can see this in the text, for it says that night will be no more. We will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be our light. Our senses will no longer be dulled by the night of sin and death. Night will be no more, and we will be able to see and approach our God, who lives in unapproachable light. And we won't just see him, but he'll look upon us with favor and delight. For this text says that his name will be on their foreheads. And so we'll be his possession and will be his people forever. But again, this isn't just a future reality. God has sealed us with by his spirit. And by his spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. And so do you ever feel like God is fed up with you? Do you feel like he's just going to give up on you or throw you away? Brothers and sisters, if God has sealed you, he won't let go of you. He'll preserve all of his people until they're home with him. Not one of them will fall from his grip, and every one of them will see his face. And yet we won't just worship him and see him. We'll also reign with him. This is what we see at the end of verse 5, which says, They will reign forever and ever. And so we won't just be priests in God's kingdom, we'll also be kings. We'll rightly exercise dominion over all of God's creation with Christ. And no longer will we be tempted to misuse God's creation, no longer will we be tempted to worship the work of our hands. Will rule justly alongside our King Jesus. And yet we've already been declared kings in Christ. For Ephesians 2 says that those who have been made alive in Christ have been raised up with Him and seated with Him in the, presently, in the heavenly places. That's present tense. And so if you're in Christ, then you're royalty. That means that the poorest of the poor on this side of eternity are rich if they're in Christ. That means that the weakest of the weak are strong if they're in Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, what room do we have to be discontent, are frustrated with our lives or circumstances? We're priest kings in God's kingdom. All of the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places are ours in Christ now. And one day we'll reign with him in the new heavens and new earth. And we'll know and enjoy our God forever and ever. And there won't be any more tears. Sin, death, and the devil will be no more. And we will worship him forever. And so if you're not a Christian, I just want to tell you that these things can also be true for you. That if you repent of your sins, which means to turn from your sin, and turn and trust in Christ alone as your Savior in your life, then you will worship God, that you will see Him, and that you will reign with Him. And yet while you're now a rebel, He'll cleanse you of your sins in Christ. And he'll declare you to be holy and righteous in Christ. And he will give you a new heart and a new will that desires to do all things to the glory of God. Yet I have to tell you that if you don't turn to him. That he'll not let you into his kingdom. Instead, you'll be judged by him for eternity. In the sight of his glory will not be your joy, but it will be your terror. And so friends, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So friend, don't turn away. Turn and trust in Christ today. And you'll enjoy him forever as a priest and king in his kingdom. And so brothers and sisters... I know that when we look out at the world and we see the effects of the fall, it's easy for us to grow bitter and frustrated or to wonder why Christ hasn't returned yet. But I don't think that's the right response. I think we need to long together for Christ to return, that we need to long for him to come and make things new, all things new, And so, brothers and sisters, let's long for the day when we'll sing, no more let sin and sorrow grow, and it will be so. Amen? Let's pray.